So before we begin, as you know, yesterday saw the tragic death of Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, at the age of 99. He'd been married to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II for a remarkable 73 years, and his life was one marked through a lifetime of public service and an unflinching dedication to the sovereign. Indeed, and across the entire Commonwealth and the world, there are many tributes paid to this frankly extraordinary man, and his legacy will live on. May he rest in peace, and Sam and I would like to send our condolences and prayers to the royal family. And whatever your opinions on the monarchy, he leaves behind a grieving family and a wife who will have woken up this morning for the first time without her husband of more than seven decades. So I think it's worth remembering that. But this episode shall go on. It's Saturday the 10th of April 2021. And this is Ballot to Talk About. Hello and welcome to Ballot to Talk About. Joining me as always is my co-host Churn. How's everything going Churn? I'm doing pretty good thanks. I'm wondering have you decided to book your haircut appointment for uh, very soon? I have. I'm going on the second day it's open next week. I can't wait. I thought I'd give them a day to get back into practice and then I'll go down and see what can be done but I cannot wait for the easing of lockdown restrictions on Monday. It's been a long time coming. Indeed, and something in which that all countries are beginning to tentatively go over these next couple of weeks and months as they simultaneously battle vaccines, rollout, and unlocking restrictions once again. Hopefully, for many people around the world, it's on the road to recovery right now instead of another major setback. And as the vaccination rollout continues, this is providing a new electoral dimension and certainly one that will be tested in the United Kingdom over the next month or so, isn't it, Sam? Yes, as we set out last week, over the next month, we'll be taking a look at the politics of the United Kingdom in the build-up to the local and regional elections that are taking place on May the 6th. But today, we'll be focusing on the one region of the UK that will be not be seeing elections this cycle, but is nonetheless politically fascinating. So we thought we'd talk about Northern Ireland. Indeed, and we'll be discussing the state of politics in this historically turbulent region and talk about the main players there, the rise and fall of the unionist parties, those parties that want to remain in the United Kingdom, and the nationalist parties, parties that would prefer to join the Republic of Ireland. But before we talk about um, this region, which has been in the news recently, Sam, there's been another election in another Eastern European country last weekend, wasn't it? Yes, so last Sunday, Bulgaria went to the polls to elect the 240 seats in their National Assembly, with Prime Minister Boyko Borisov hoping to extend his time in the office that he's held, except for a short period between 2013 and 2014, since 2009. His Conservative Populist GERB party, the Citizens for European Development of Bulgaria, won the election but the 26% they gained is their lowest ever result since they were founded back in 2006. And it looks like they will lose around 20 seats, putting them at least 40 seats short of a majority in the assembly. The big news of the night was the projected second place finish of the brand new There Is Such A People party, which is led by talk show host Slavi Trifonov, 
who looks set to debut in the Assembly with around 50 seats, which is quite a result for a party formed within the last few years. And the Socialist Party, alongside its shared list left-wing allied parties, saw its worst electoral defeat since the democratisation of Bulgaria back in 1990. And it's yet another example of a poor-performing Socialist Party in Europe. So Boyko Borisov is going to face a very tough mountain to climb in forming the next government. And his traditional Nationalist Party coalition partners actually failed to cross the 4% threshold this time. And the parties that did make it into the Assembly are either ideologically distant or have vowed not to support him and his party in government. The new There Is Such a People Party, Democratic Bulgaria and Get Up Get Out, who collectively led the anti-corruption protests last summer, could look to form a minority government with the tacit endorsement of the socialists. But it remains to be seen whether this is actually an attractive option for those parties or indeed the socialist party itself. It does seem from these results that Bulgaria is in favour of a change of leader, but who that leader is going to be and whether Boyko Borisov might nonetheless be able to pull something together or indeed call new elections all seems to be on the table at the moment in Bulgaria. So, Chern, first question, what are your thoughts on the future of Boyko Borisov? Do you think he'll manage to pull this off? In some ways, Boyko Borisov reminds me a bit like Benjamin Netanyahu's situation, in which that he is strong enough to be the biggest party, but weak enough that he cannot form a viable coalition of parties together. And so Bulgarian politics to me is in a bit of a limbo situation where he will definitely have the first shot as he has considerably outperformed the rest of the parties in terms of their share of the vote but will struggle towards getting the number of seats that they need to put him over the top. So potentially, I think in the short term, he probably would remain prime minister, um, largely possibly in an acting capacity, but putting together that permanent government for this term looks particularly very difficult for him. And it's also some another similarity to Netanyahu is that both are facing corruption charges um, and uh, is seen as leading a government that it's very polarizing and that's kind of and that's the nature of the, both their situations really so i think yes in the short term he is potentially secure but in the long term i am not so sure about the likelihood of his government survive survival to be honest so bulgaria is due to hold presidential elections in november and some people have talked about potentially that being a date where they could rehold these um, parliamentary elections. Do you, do you see that happening? I certainly do, because I think the, the position of the opposition parties are so entrenched that it makes it very difficult to uh, for one to reach across and help Boyko Borisov get across the line. Of course, the situation remains open to a party doing a Benny Gantz, as we talked about last week, um, and reaching out um, and helping Boyko Borisov across the line, but I just don't see that happening. And the, of course, the other problem is that even if um, there is enough parties to form an anti-Boyko Borisov coalition, there is nothing that unites them beyond the anti-corruption element potentially um, and getting rid of Boyko Borisov. So any government that does form of that arrangement could very easily fall apart, particularly as, you know, as Bulgaria is mm -hmm. like numerous other countries that are dealing with coronavirus. And 
there are very deep divisions with how to deal with coronavirus related issues. So yes, potentially you could see new elections held in November and that could be very interesting. What do you think, Sam? Is there the likelihood of new elections being held then? Or do you see Boycott Borisov putting together a coalition? I can see a situation where new elections are held because just looking at these numbers, I think it's going to be very difficult for any group to amass a stable enough majority that all the parties within it are on board fully and they have enough of a buffer Mm. zone to allow that not to happen. Another thing I did want to talk about briefly is obviously there's a big European dimension here because the Bulgarian government was almost uniquely responsible for vetoing the EU accession talks of North Macedonia. Do you think that we underestimate the importance of national elections on EU politics, particularly in these smaller Eastern European nations? I think in the past, there generally was underestimation. But I think that problem has become much more in the public domain in recent European Parliament elections. Because as the big EPP, the European People's Party and the Party for European Socialists have crumbled in terms of traditional support in a lot of the East-Western European states, the Eastern Europeans are beginning to rise up in terms of prominence, with not only within these groups, but potentially as parties that sit outside the PES and the EPP. So, and they're beginning to see that more complex negotiation dynamics that required in some of the EU decision-making mm-hmm. process. So I remember after the la- last round where Charles Michel became European Union Council President, Ursula von der Leyen took the Commission President, and Christy Lagarde took out the top job of the ECB, that there was a lot of disgruntlement from Eastern Europeans that all the top job went to Western Europeans, really. And don't forget as well that a lot of issues in Europe in dealing with somewhat troublesome allies in Eastern Europe. So the Hungarians, for instance, Viktor Orban's party had caused a lot of problems for the European People's Party in terms of tensions um, within that eventually led to uh, Viktor Orban pulling his party out of the EPP. And the European Union has had quite frosty relations with the Polish government as well over issues relating to law and order as well. So I think Europe is beginning to pay increasingly more attention to these elections in smaller nations because of the profound effect it is having in Brussels as the traditional Western European parties are disintegrating in the EU parliament and because they're having to deal with some much more unreliable allies in Poland and Hungary, etc. No, that's, that's super interesting. Interestingly as well, Boyko Borisov having first become... Bulgarian Prime Minister back in 2009 is another one of those figures in the European Union who's been around a long time because Bulgaria um, joined the EU back in 2007. So Boyko Borisov has pretty much uniquely been Prime Minister of Bulgaria while they've been in the European Union. So I think on a different level, he's also quite an influential leader within the European Union for the Eastern side. As I mentioned when I was talking about the results, it was yet another bad night for a European Socialist Party. In fact, in Bulgaria's case, their worst night in the history of Bulgaria's um, constitutional independence. So does this experience of the Bulgarian Socialists parallel more broad centre-left Social Democratic Party's failures 
in Western Europe as well? Or do you think there's something different going on? I think my answer is broadly yes, with a few caveats. A lot of these Bulgarian uh, socialist parties in Eastern Europe were born out of the communist parties or the various left-wing parties that were governing Eastern Europe before the collapse of communism. So I wonder whether in those early elections, their share of the vote was inflated a little bit because a lot of the personalities that led the anti-communist movement were from the communist establishment and formed center-left parties because people were familiar with those kinds of politics. But because they led anti-communist movements, they were relatively popular and therefore their party share of the vote were inflated. It's kind of a nostalgia element. Mm-hmm. And I think in Eastern Europe, the, 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 these parties nevertheless suffered some of the same problems with disillusionment with the traditional center-left bloc, um, potentially of the fact that it embraced a more free market style of politics, which is very similar to what a lot of these third wave social democrat parties um, experienced in places like Germany, to a lesser extent, UK Labour, um, and and therefore lost a bit of their industrial working class roots, which are the, often the base of their support. So I think that similarity mm-hmm. lies in there as well. But I think in Eastern Europe, there's also the added dimension of corruption issues as well, which has particularly tarnished these um, Eastern Europe who might have, who were under communism potentially because the lesser money being flowing through the, um, these countries the extent of corruption was not as rife as it is currently. So I think that has further added fuel to the disillusionment that was possibly absent in Western European countries. And I think one thing I'd like to point out is that despite a lot of Eastern European countries having relatively low levels of immigration, adopting a populist anti-immigration stance is still particularly popular and has legs to run in Eastern Europe itself. Mm -hmm. And as we know, running an anti-immigration stance is particular fuel for right-wing populist parties to run as well. And they tend, and those parties tend to attract votes for what used to be the traditional centre-left parties as well. So I don't think that could be discounted either. Oh, for sure, for sure. So Chen, how about you? What have you been following this week? Well, I thought that at the end of this month, um, Joseph Biden would have celebrated 100 days in office. Gosh, 100 days seems to pass really quickly though, hasn't it? <laughs> and so I thought this week, we would, I would like to take an opportunity to look at the fully formed Biden cabinet itself, which apart from one post, which is the director of Office of Management of Budget has all been confirmed. Mm-hmm. The confirmation process took a little bit longer than expected, largely not helped by the fact that there was a second impeachment trial of former President Donald Trump. The first cabinet minister to be confirmed was Avril Haines on uh, Biden's inauguration day itself, and she was confirmed as director of national intelligence. And the final confirmation was Marty Walsh as secretary for labor. And the reason why I thought we could look at the Biden confirmation and cabinet nomination process is that the Senate is evenly divided at 50-50. And so therefore, there has been a great deal of interest to see whether this process could be an indicator of to what extent Republicans are willing to play ball with a certain element of the Biden agenda. Some cabinet ministers have breezed through their confirmation hearings and been easily confirmed, and others have had a more rocky road. So 
I thought we will start with a few fun facts which have amused us through our conversations throughout um, the cabinet, buying cabinet process. First of all, Josh Hawley, who has adopted or certainly taken up the flag as trying to be one of the most Trumpian rep- uh, Republican senators, throughout this process, had certainly gotten some ear from people like Susan Collins for voting no, no matter who the nominee or how qualified the nominee was. But he did have one yay vote, which was Catherine Tai as the US trade representative. And she was confirmed by a vote of 98-0. She got the highest number of yay votes and was the only person not to have a single representative vote against her, which I found interesting. The closest margin, apart from Nina Tandon, who didn't even get to the nomination floor, was Health Secretary Xavier Barakava was confirmed 50 to 49. And Susan Collins was the lone Republican that voted to confirm Xavier Barakava. Uh, the next closest was Interior Secretary Deb Harlan at 51.40. And I thought I'd just mention three sort of slightly interesting ones, which I personally found very interesting. Uh, Pete Buttigieg, who as we talked numerous times on this podcast, um, was easily confirmed 86 to 13. And his department, Department for Transport, has the same number of employees, which is around 55,000, as the number of people in South Bend where he was mayor of. So it's quite a phenomenal leap there. Also amusing was Merrick Garland, who easily winning confirmation as Attorney General, with 20 Republicans also voting in, in favour, including Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell. So I think it would be interesting to think what could have been in 2016 had the Republicans not tried to operate such a blockade against his nomination. And one final thing that has also been a consequence of Biden's cabinet being fully confirmed is that Gina Raimondo was, um, conf- has been sworn in as Commerce Secretary easily winning her nomination, 84-15, which necessitated her resignation as governor of Rhode Island, which was a previous job. And it saw her lieutenant governor, Daniel McKee, who was another Democrat, taking over. So Sam, looking at everyone who has been confirmed, have there been any surprises in terms of who has been confirmed as easily as you expected based on its margin? And who, had, who ran into more difficulties with its confirmation besides Nero Tandon? So I think for me, the biggest surprise in terms of confirmed easily was Lloyd Austin, because we talked about quite early on that Lloyd Austin could have potentially run into some problems in the Senate, because there were even people on the Democratic side who were questioning the granting of a military waiver for Lloyd Austin to be able to take over as Defence Secretary. In the end, he was confirmed very quickly and very smoothly when it got to the Senate floor and in the committee, to be honest. So that was a surprise to me that we didn't encounter more problems with that nomination. The other position I wanted to bring up because I thought we could have a very quick chat about it was Alejandro Mayorkas, who had an immense amount of problems getting out of the committee way back right at the start of the Biden presidency, because usually the Homeland Security Secretary is quite a swift position to confirm because it's seen as quite an important one to get into post as quickly as possible. And Alejandro Mayorkas had a huge range of problems getting out of committee, as I said, and even getting his vote onto the floor of the Senate. So was this a disagreement with policy or was it a disagreement with the person? What was the problem here for people who didn't follow that story? 
if I recall, it was a problem we related to his previous job as Deputy Secretary of Homeland Security. And I believe, and you do correct me if I went if I was wrong with this, that there was accusations that he basically favored some applicants for foreign investor visas in several cases. So it was seen as a little bit of favors getting really and expressing favoritisms. Um, and mm-hmm. I do note that he expressed regret as intervention created an impression of that, although the inspector general cl- cleared him that his acts did not violate the law. And don't forget, I think just on a broader point of Homeland Security, mm-hmm. I think one of the lessons the Republicans took out from Donald Trump's victory in 2016 is that running a very hardline immigration stance is very popular with the Trump voters, um, which they were so successful in getting in those industrial midway states that gave Trump the presidency. And the building of the wall and overall granting of visas such as that is under the purview of the Department for Homeland Security, which Alejandro Mayorkas was nominated to be in charge of. So mm-hmm. I wonder whether moving forward, if let's say Alejandro Mayorkas for some reason decides to retire or resign during the Biden presidency, that whoever the next Secretary of Homeland Security is could face a potentially more difficult problem because the Republicans want to highlight the divisions on Homeland Security, given the fact that Trump won the presidency based on um, a hardline stance on immigration. So I think that is something we need to consider as well. Um, Yeah, so so Mm -hmm. that's what I think as well. For me personally, the reason why I brought up Pete Buttigieg was that I was surprised this nomination was confirmed relatively easily because I thought that if you ran in a major party's uh, primary and was uh, one of the big players within it, that he could encounter more resistance from Republicans. So the fact that 13 Republicans voted against him was to me slightly surprising. And furthermore, he had no experience running anything related to transport or being seen as a policy expert within the transportation field. So that's why I, I said that Pete Buttigieg was my slightly more fun fact because I thought that his nomination would create a little bit more hurdles than the smooth process mm-hmm. that he later underwent. What do you think, Sam? Yeah, I completely agree. But by all accounts, Pete Buttigieg had quite a successful committee hearing appearance. People were giving him plaudits for his ability to navigate the questions, to bring in actually a Republican to vouch for him as transport secretary and he just presented himself as quite an effective man for the job and I think even in the midst of this high partisanship we have in the United States at the moment if you can present yourself as as a good person for the job a relatively uncontroversial you can still sail through even in a partisan environment so I think that was a nice example that even in the midst of all this chaos some things still remain which is that if you're good for the job you will get the job and i think that's a good moment to talk about the lone person who didn't get confirmed and she was Neera Tandon, who was nominated as biden's choice as omb's office of management of budget uh director um i should say before we start that all presidents at least had one problem getting one cabinet minister or one person that has been confirmed during this period to be confirmed. So her problems are not unique. Obama, for example, couldn't get his first choice confirmed as Commerce Secretary. So for listeners who might not know, what doomed the Neera Tandon nomination? 
Well, she was actually doomed by her Twitter account in the end because it was revealed that she deleted over a thousand tweets which were attacking Republican senators. And she changed her Twitter bio from saying progressive to saying liberal. And this was something that the Republicans on the committee were appalled by. They were claiming she was too partisan and people were appalled by what she'd been tweeting. And in the end, it was Joe Manchin that actually killed the nomination by saying he would vote against her. And then when Rob Portman, Susan Collins, Mitt Romney and Pat Toomey all said the same thing, there was absolutely no way she was going to be passed on the Senate floor. So on March the 2nd, at her request, Biden withdrew the nomination. But it was I think it just was a great demonstration of the power of social media nowadays and how it can come back to bite you in the end. But I think she ended up being a target for the Republicans for, well, we need to down one of these nominations. And this was a convenient way to do this one. So I think Neera Tendon ended up suffering because of that. And I think what as well shows the power of one individual senator in a completely 50-50 Precisely. I mean, Joe Manchin is a very powerful individual at the moment. Indeed. And I suspect for a lot of liberals, he might frustrate its agenda going forward because he's already signaled that he is not willing to move on um, changing the filibuster, for example, which effectively kills any chance of the filibuster being reformed. And so the Democrats might have to resort to rather creative ways to getting um, its legislation through the Senate if it wants to avoid the filibuster. And finally, Sam, from all the cabinet nominations and this confirmation process, what inference or lessons can we potentially draw from it? Well, I think it was interesting comparing this nomination process to the last one, which was unique in many ways with Donald Trump's, of how the just how bizarre the last four years had actually been, because this was a relatively smooth nomination and confirmation process with even figures like Merrick Garland getting 70 yes votes. Um, and it was a huge series of firsts as well, which I think can't be said enough, just how significant in terms of diversity this round of cabinet nominations it's been. And I think it was a lesson that if you pick people who are good for their job slash have had a lot of experience in that department, whatever the partisan environment, whether it's a 50-50 Senate or not, you can get them confirmed. Because I remember us talking back in January about how the 50-50 nature of the Senate could have proved difficult for the cabinet nomination process. And in fact, near a tandem aside, it was relatively smooth. Um, so I think the lessons are if you appoint effective candidates, it doesn't matter what the balance of power is, they will still be able to be confirmed, which was actually quite a promising thing to take away, given the state of the United States politics for the last four years. Indeed. And to be honest, I think the Republicans also picked their battles, particularly. I don't think they put up a great fight against many of them. No. But where they did fight, which was potentially the Nero Tandon nomination, Xavier Barakava nomination, they could, the, the margins became quite close in those cases. And to be honest, I'm not sure how much we can infer from it because I think these are meant to be administrators of their department rather than necessarily the big churning out of policy. And to be honest, even if they do churn out policy, the Senate still has to pass the legislation anyway. And Biden's bigger battles would be trying to get his agenda through the Senate. I've already seen 
um, his Amer American jobs plan go through the Senate, but that was a plan that did not attract a single Republican vote. And he's going to try very soon with an infrastructure bill. And I don't see, well, relations between mm -hmm. the Democrats and Republicans are already at an all-time low on that. And we, I doubt that the cabinet nomination process has generated any goodwill into the legislative fight that is due to take place over the next two years. Yes, and we'll be continuing to keep an eye on the United States, as always, in the weeks to come. And I think this is a good moment to pause. We'll be right back after this. So welcome back to About to Talk About. As we said at the start, this week, we thought we'd take a look at the one region of the UK not holding elections in this local election cycle, Northern Ireland. From Martin McGuinness's resignation in January 2017 and the collapse of power sharing to the restoration of Stormont government three years later, it's safe to say that the six counties have been through quite a turbulent political journey in recent years. And the violence of the last few days on the streets also serves as a further illustration of just how volatile the political environment can be in Northern Ireland. And we might be 23 years on from the Good Friday Agreement to the day, but tensions still exist, and I think it's important to recognise that. We're going to take this opportunity to look at the politics of this fascinating area of the UK and assess what we might want to look out for ahead of the elections that they will be having this time next year to elect their first assembly since power sharing was restored. And importantly, the first election since the UK left the European Union. So for the starter question, Chern, can you briefly summarise what occurred in the past few years with regards to power sharing for people who don't know and the situation we're currently in in Northern Ireland? So the, so first of all, I think before we do that, there are two main blocks in Northern Ireland for people who do not know. We have the unionist side, which are parties that want to see a close relationship or remain part of the United Kingdom, where, which is the status quo. And then we have the nationalist side, which is... Um, which is where the uh, parties there want to, uh, want to join the Republic of Ireland on, and unify the Ireland of Ireland. The main parties in the, there's also in the bloc are uh, in the unionist side, the Democratic Unionist Party, and on the nationalist side, Sinn Féin. And there's also a religious element as well, which has created tensions within the years where the, the unionists tend to be Protestant and the nationalists tend to be Catholic. So I thought it's, it, we need to set up the, the, the overall overview as such. Power sharing, I think, in the era of Brexit has been an uneasy relationship between both sides of the divide, I would argue. Um, Brexit has really exasperated the tensions. I think particularly since um, the DUP essentially provided confidence and supply to Theresa May's government from 2017 to 2019. So I think the situation has been rather tense and uneasy. Martin McGuinness pulled his government out in January 2017 over um, a, a, actually a policy decision that was taken in Northern Ireland, which is over the Renewable Heating Initiative, which was in the purview of when Eileen Foster, who was first minister, uh, was a minister of the economy at the time. So actually it was a political scandal that brought it down in January 2017. But I think it's failure over three years to reform the Northern Ireland executive, particularly after the 2017 assembly election, could be directly attributed to Brexit and some of the tensions within the community. 
And it is notable by the fact that when the moment that Boris Johnson won a majority in December 2019, we're therefore removing the imperative that the DUP had to support the Westminster government, that Stormont could reform relatively soon after that. So I think that it's something that we cannot discount to what has happened since then. I think what has kept the Good Friday Agreement intact for all these years is that the main head of the unionist movement and the Republican, um, the nationalist movement, which was particularly after 2003, which was Ian Paisley of the DUP and Martin McGinnis of Sinn Féin, had a very close personal working relationship with each other. In fact, they were called the Chuckle Brothers by members of Northern Ireland media. But I don't think uh, he, Martin McGuinness had ever such a warm relationship with Eileen Foster, nor Eileen Foster had that same close relationship with Michelle O'Neill, who is the leader of Sinn Féin North of the Border. So I don't think that has helped the situation that we're currently in at the moment. No, that's very interesting. So I think we should dive straight into the parties, really. So I think we could take a look first at the unionist side. So the main unionist party, as you said, is currently the Democratic Unionist Party. But traditionally, that role was held by the Ulster Unionist Party, the UUP. So how are these main parties faring at the moment And also on the side of the DUP and the UUP, what is the difference between these two parties historically in terms of their performance as well? Well, historically, the Ulster Unionist was the dominant force in Northern Ireland politics, as you say. I think the main difference between UUP and DUP is the extent or how unionists are you, let's put it that way. The Ulster Unionists are relatively more moderate than the DUP, and and that was been the main difference. The rise of the DUP, I think, has been synonymous with something we'll talk later about Northern Ireland politics, which is that both the nationalists and the unionists have more have the way you get votes within these communities because the UP votes, the DUP are essentially competing for the same unionist votes rather than cross-community votes. That's how politics are aligned there. And the way in which you get votes within this community is to appeal to the median voter within the unionist community. And the unionist community has become relatively more hardline mm-hmm. over the years. And so therefore, that has potentially fueled the rise of the DUP at the extent of the UUP. And I do note that the threat of the traditional unionist voice, which is led by Jim Allister, and I've seen an increase in its poll ratings. They're currently polling about 10% right now in the latest opinion poll conducted in January 2021, compared to the just about 3% they got in the 2017 Assembly election was because they're seen as an even more hardline version of the DUP. So there's definitely a continuation of this trend, which has left the D, which has moved the median voter towards even more hardline elements within that. And that has contributed to the rise of the DUP, right, in history, and is potentially causing a threat to it right now with the rise of the traditional unionists voice itself. But nevertheless, even though the UUP has declined, they have still somewhat of a base. They poll quite consistently around 10 to 15% share the vote over the last few elections. So nevertheless, there is that voice of moderate unionism within the party, but it is still very much so uh, playing second fiddle and potentially will play third fiddle in the next assembly elections. That's how I see the unionist bloc moving. There was thought in 2015 when the Ulster Unionists actually took two seats in Westminster, the Fermanagh and South Tyrone seat, 
and the Antrim South Sea. But at the moment, they are. But they lost. They promptly lost those seats in 2017. So although the UUP thought they were going to rise, Brexit des- destroyed that narrow, destroyed them, and they've been polling about 10, 11 percent in the 17 and 19 elections compared to the 7, 15, 16 percent they were polling in the couple of elections before. No, that's a really interesting summary. I thought. Another interesting tidbit is that the current first minister of Northern Ireland, Arlene Foster, was one of those notable UUP members who defected to the DUP and started this this transformation of the DUP's fortunes um, back in 2003. Um, And it's also interesting when we come on to talk about the nationalist parties as well, that it seems to be that the Good Friday Agreement was a key turning point in terms of the fortunes of the UUP and the SDLP, who is the nationalist party who used to be the strongest nationalist party, because they work together to negotiate these concessions and negotiate power sharing and a peace treaty that for decades before it had seemed politically impossible to negotiate And it seemed that both of those parties paid the ultimate price for negotiating this treaty that survived 23 years, which is just that people rejected them on their own side for the concessions they had to make. And it's very interesting that negotiating something that is quite a political feat, in fact, a feat that was recognised in the Nobel Peace Prize, and you can pay the ultimate political price for doing so. I think you're right that the Good Friday signing the Good Friday Agreement was a notable turning point in the UP's fortunes. Because I note, if you look at the UK Parliament elections, that in the 2001 general election, which is the first election after the uh, 1998 Good Friday Agreement, the UUP lost almost half its seats, going down from ten seats to six. And I think, to be honest, it's quite interesting that some of the seats they lost were actually to nationalist parties, actually. The Fermanagh and South Tyrone seat and West Tyrone were both in 1997 uh, Ulster Unionist seat. They actually lost it to Sinn Féin in the next election mm-hmm. as well. I think partly because of the fact that the establishment of the Northern Ireland executive itself prompted a lot of soft nationalists to actually vote for the nationalist alternative rather than the soft, soft unionists kind of who thought they were a little bit harmless approach really. And the setting up the Northern Ireland executive itself represents a further break from the Republic of Ireland, a very visible break, in my opinion. So I don't think, so they were squeezed on that element and it will potentially squeeze in the fact that you, given the establishment of the Northern Ireland executive, the unionists could vote for even more pro-unionist option and therefore more strongly represent its interests, which fueled the rise of the UP and caused it to lose seats in, uh, in some of its more traditional strongholds, like Strangford, for example, in 2001. I think, therefore, that's also a good opportunity, given the fact that we talked about the Tyrones of the world, to talk about the nationalist parties. How do you think, therefore, the nationalist parties are faring at the moment? Do you see the same similar sort of trends as the unionist parties that I've been talking about? Yeah, it's funny that actually there's a, there's a lot of similarities between the two sides in terms of how the party system has transformed in the last couple of decades. So for a state of affairs... Sinn Féin are currently sat on 27 seats in the Assembly and seven seats in Westminster, although they don't take those seats, but they won seven constituencies. And the SDLP 
has 12 seats in the Assembly and two seats in Westminster. And those are the key nationalist parties. 2017 was the first time that unionist parties did not have a majority in the Northern Ireland Assembly. And it was the first time that the nationalists and unionist parties actually had the same number of seats combined in that election. So this was quite a turning point for nationalist parties. And it seems that nationalism is, to a certain extent, on the rise. And it's actually mirrored by the Sinn Féin's performance south of the border as well in the Republic of Ireland, because now they are the joint largest party in the Irish dial, with 37 seats alongside Michael Martin's Fianna Fáil. So Sinn Féin's dominance in the nationalist wing is a relatively new phenomenon in terms of the nationalist votes, because up until relatively recently in terms of Northern Irish history, they were banned as a political party. And on multiple occasions, they were suspended from the Good Friday Agreement negotiations. And it wasn't until 2003, where they came third in the assembly elections, that they overtook the SDLP as the biggest nationalist party with six seats ahead of them. And the transformation really seems to have come from the the ability of Sinn Féin to position themselves as this anti-austerity party. So trying to position themselves as this progressive left-wing party in the nationalist scheme of things. Obviously, their nationalist credentials still remain and are still a very important part of their identification. But post the 2008 crash with a more progressive image they were able to transform their fortunes and move from this being seen as the political wing of the IRA to being seen as a legitimate ideological choice for a party to vote for in assembly elections. So really, as you outlined for the Unionist Party, the change in the, in the performance of the Nationalist parties is that the SDLP was seen as the concession option in the Good Friday Agreement, and Sinn Féin is the more extremist nationalist option, and the DUP and the Sinn Féin's performances have increased at the same time as people have moved away from the parties that forged this peace agreement towards the parties that have issues with it. Interesting. I'm, I'm just curious in regards, you mentioned the fact that Sinn Féin is increasingly adopted anti-austerity uh, measures mm-hmm. as part of its platform. That suggests a more economic ideology, traditional economic ideology ideology appeal of the party. Does that suggest to you mm-hmm. any progress in the politics of Northern Ireland? Yeah, I think to a certain extent it does, because to, to imagine a position where Sinn Féin are close to being the largest party in Northern Ireland, and specifically close to being the governing party in the Republic of Ireland within the last few decades was just completely unimaginable. The reputation of them as a party outside of Northern Ireland and even within it was completely tarnished by what some perceive to be Sinn Féin's role within the more extreme factions of the Troubles before the Good Friday Agreement was forged. So I think you have to look to the transformation of their policies as a reasoning for that. And I think the anti-austerity measure is one explanation of that. And if you look south of the border, the Republic held their election last year. And quite a lot of the credit went to Sinn Féin's housing policy as to why they were able to perform so strongly 
in that election because they were the left-leaning progressive alternative to what people perceive to be the tired old parties. Now, I think in Northern Ireland, the move away from the unionist nationalist divide has not occurred to a large extent. So to say that would, I think, be completely misunderstanding the political dimension in Northern Ireland. But I don't think it can be understated either the importance of the transformation in leadership because Gerry Adams was a very different individual to Mary Lou Macdonald and Michelle O'Neill um, because of the associations they had with the history of Northern Ireland. Whereas I think the transformation in leadership to people like Michelle O'Neill in Northern Ireland, Mary Lou Macdonald in the Republic has managed to provide them with an opportunity to maintain the nationalist voters they used to have, but also reach a bit beyond that in trying to push the ideology in a different direction. Indeed, and I think more importantly, it has rid itself with the troublesome period of the past, or suddenly yeah. the people that were associated or were suspected to have contributed to more extreme elements of the trouble, Jerry Adams and Martin McInnes, and that break from the past is particularly significant as well. Exactly. And I think whenever Jerry Adams sat down for an interview in an election campaign, the first question and most of the line of questions would be about his role in paramilitary organisations in the Troubles. But you can't ask those same questions of Michelle O'Neill. So I think just moving the agenda on is much easier now that Jerry Adams and the late Martin McGuinness aren't at the helm of the party. So... Therefore, as a final question on this nationalist side, before we talk about some of the other common themes that we've identified so far, is that, is there any other factors besides this possible greater prominence of anti-austerity, particularly since the post-global financial crisis, and the overall hardening of the nationalist vote that could potentially explain the change of so-called the leading nationalist parties from the SDLP to Sinn Féin? I think, to be honest, it's difficult to look beyond their role in the Good Friday Agreement and hardening of opinion since then as to why the SCLP have fallen in prominence. Because I think people on both sides were resentful at some of the concessions made. The reason why I thought there could be another factor is that Sinn Féin went into government after 2000, the rest restoration of power sharing in 2000, after the 2003 and I think being in government gave them opportunity mm -hmm. to break a taboo potentially surrounding their involvement in the sense that they were quite, they were willing to, part, to talk with the unionists and participate constructively with the unionists, which helped shed its, you know, yeah. its, its reputation that it garnered beforehand. And I think that cannot be discounted in helping it to explain its rise in the sense that, oh, they were not potentially as bad as what their reputation seemed to be. And I think that certainly helped as well. But nevertheless, in wrapping it up, I've noted there are several themes running across both, as, as we mentioned a couple of times. How much of these hardening of the unionist and nationalist positions within Northern Ireland have been the result of Brexit? So I think Brexit played a very interesting role in Northern Ireland, um, not just economically and trade-wise because of the border, but I think it also played a political role. As a key example of this, the state of unionism in particular is, is, seems to be on the decline because a border poll, which is the way you would describe a referendum on 
uniting Ireland once again. Back in January 2013, support for such a poll would pull around 17 to 20%. Now, it's between 40 and 45%. So I think that serves as a good, good illustration how even within the last five years or so from pre-referendum to now, the support for reunification of Ireland has gone up substantially, which I think people were aware that there was this divide existing within Northern Ireland. Of course they were, because the troubles, I, I talked to my parents about this. It was the defining feature of UK politics, to be honest, in the 70s and 80s. So to imagine a situation in which Northern Ireland would actually move towards becoming quite 50-50 on a unionist nationalist front, it seems unimaginable. And it's clear that Brexit has played a big role in, in doing that as well. And I think also the Sinn Féin and DUP presented themselves as the big Remain and Leave party within Northern Ireland. And it was difficult for the other parties to get in on that debate. And in the same way that Brexit repolarized politics in England, I think it's done the same thing in Northern Ireland as well. And has just exaggerated a process that was already going on before the referendum was held. I agree the fact that it exasperated and added fuel to the fire. I say not helped by the fact that DUP supported Theresa May's government in crucial Brexit votes, which I think playing being so openly on one side alienated the nationalist communities who she needed, who needed to keep the peace somewhat as first minister during that mm -hmm. period. And I, that, I don't think that could be discounted as well. One thing that we, we didn't talk about, the one remaining political party is the Alliance Party, which has built itself as a bridge between the unionist and nationalist communities and a liberal force to try and bridge those two. How much runway can, can the, 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 does this party have? I know, for example, it had some success in recent parliamentary elections. In 2019, it took the North Down constituency. And in 2010, it memorably defeated then First Minister Peter Robinson for his Westminster seat in, 20, in East Belfast. So what do you think is the role of the Alliance Party now in Northern Ireland, particularly as it seems that tensions between an identification within the two camps is running high at the moment? Yeah, I think the Alliance Party is incredibly interesting because they're, they're polling at a reasonably strong position and they exclusively present themselves as liberal, non-sectarian, and they actually oppose power sharing because they claim that power sharing actually deepens the divide, the sectarian divides by suggesting that both of them have to coexist because it's still a problem, um, which I think the recent days have proved that it absolutely is. Um, and since 2011, they've had eight seats continuously in the Northern Ireland Assembly. It is, however, important to state that in 2017, the Assembly became smaller. So to maintain your same number of seats does imply growth. And back in 2019, when we held in the UK those bizarre European Parliament elections, Naomi Long actually took the third Northern Ireland seat. So the seats went to Sinn Féin, the DUP and Alliance, firmly securing them as the like triumvirate of Northern Irish politics. And Naomi Long actually got just shy of 19% of the first preference vote, which is nothing to scoff at at all. As for how much runway I think there is for this sort of party, I think it's very difficult to say because 
marketing yourself as a party that is outside of the sectarian divide in a region where the sectarian divide is still clearly very strong, I think is a very difficult position for you to put yourself in, because I think it's still a lot more prevalent than we as international observers and even me within the United Kingdom understands. So I don't know how much runway this party has, but it's certainly interesting to see that they're getting some support at all. Um, And they're within the Westminster party now. And I think they will grow in support in next year's assembly elections as well. So it'll be interesting to watch whether this party actually gets traction. The problem with that overall idea in me, in my head of trying to unify both sides is that they're taking a lot more of a soft unionist vote more than anything else. Because in the 2019 mm-hmm. European Parliament elections, Naomi Long took the third seat of the Ulster unionists. So it yes. was it's more to me suggests the fact that potentially there's some elements within the moderate unionist party who realize they have to reach across to the nationalist divide and therefore vote for the alliance party. But I do not see that moderate voice, which is potentially represented by the SDLP, necessarily coming across to help support the Alliance Party. So that's this. And until that happens, I doubt that they are willing to be able to be that third force in Northern Ireland politics. And certainly the events of the last week, we're seeing night after night of violence is not helping its cause, isn't it? In trying to for- make people forget about the sectarian divides that's often troubled Northern Ireland politics. Yeah, I think they're in this difficult position where are they trying to say that the divides are over or are they trying to make the divides over? And I think that's a difficult thing to figure out for the Alliance Party, because if they're trying to claim that the divides are over and people should forget allying themselves with sectarian divides, I think that's quite a naive position to take in Northern Ireland. And if they're trying to make these divides end, that's a mountain to climb that people have been trying to for the last, well, century, to be honest. So I think it is. it will be interesting to watch how the Alliance Party position themselves going forward. And I'll particularly be keeping an eye on what their campaign is based on in the 2022 Assembly elections as well, in terms of what arguments they try and present for voting for such a party. Interesting. And we can't not talk about the role of the UK government because traditionally, Northern Ireland issues are seen as a secondary nature, mm-hmm. and it's been less of a policy priority. Although we know that when big crisis hits, prime ministers can become consumed of issues re- arising from Northern Ireland. So firstly, Sam, are we quite there yet, based on the recent violence, or are there still worse to come? And secondly, how does Westminster continue to pay attention to it, rather than only deal with the crisis when they inevitably arise? I think Brexit is a classic example of the UK government's relative ignorance to the politics of Northern Ireland because for the campaign and in the immediate aftermath of the campaign and the early days of withdrawal agreement negotiation, Northern Ireland was barely mentioned. Now, people remember that eventually Northern Ireland became the focus of the Brexit debate and was the reason that the withdrawal agreement was delayed time and time again. It was to do with the Irish backstop. But I think it was a classic example of UK politicians misunderstanding the significance of the border and the significance of the political divides that exist there, because 
it was not just a simple issue about frictionless trade. It was an issue. It was a political issue as well and exacerbated divisions in the region. As for the UK government dealing with it when a big crisis hits, I think I know that the UK government have made some comments on the violence occurring the last few days, but the relative silence on it as a issue that they need to deal with with urgency is deafening because if there was this sort of extent of violence occurring on the streets of England, for example, I am absolutely sure they would have called numerous Cobra meetings and be trying to deal with how to approach this violence. But this, I think, proves to be too difficult of an issue for the UK government to get involved in. They don't want to make it worse because traditionally the UK government has been right at the heart of increasing conflict within the region because it is the UK government's position in Northern Ireland that is at the heart of these conflicts. So it is a very difficult thing. Do they have a responsibility to deal with problems that are affecting their citizens or do they actually have a political responsibility to stay away from it because they could make it worse? I think it's a very difficult situation for them to deal with. What do you think? I think I think you're right. And I do certainly contrast and I do agree with the fact that if this had happened in England, this would potentially be problematic. This would be a very different issue, actually, um, in terms of the scale of its response. I think part of the UK government's hesitancy in dealing with long Northern Ireland issues is that you need you need to get the Irish government involved. It's two governments having to be constantly being aware of this Northern Ireland issue. And it's kind mm-hmm. of like to get two governments to focus on it, only that can only really happen when the situation demands it, i.e. when there's a big crisis happening and there's an immense loss of light and a lot of media coverage. So I think that's partly the issue as well, is that to get the nationalist buy-in, you have to get the Irish government on board. But certainly the inflammation that we're seeing and some of the Brexit issues that have been happening is because Northern Ireland was very much an after-factor in when, when we were talking about the Brexit referendum. And I think you're right in the sense that initially, I remember a lot of the media commentary around surrounding by the fact that the DUP was essentially in lockstep with the ERG was because of ideology. But that really changed the moment Boris Johnson put through his version of the withdrawal agreement, when it became clear the DUP were advocating a unionist position rather than the ERG was advocating a different position as well. So there's been a lot of misunderstanding of Northern Ireland as a policy issue over the last couple of years, which has not helped its mm-hmm. problem. And so finally, I could therefore see, I would therefore ask you, Sam, what do you think um, as they prepare to go to the polls next year, what could we expect from Northern Ireland politics over the next year or so? And are we going to see a, a continuation of the trends that we're talking about in this podcast? I think we probably will see a continuation of the trends. What I'll be looking out for is the Sinn Féin vote in particular, because we saw last year in the Republic that Sinn Féin grew in prominence quite a lot. And it'd be interesting to see if that parallels in Northern Ireland as well. And if it does, where their votes come from, um, whether they're taking votes away from the SDLP further or whether they're actually taking some votes from traditionally unionist areas will be very interesting to watch. I think for me, what will also be interesting is to see whether there's an expansion in open dialogue about the possibility of a border poll. 
which at least before the Brexit referendum occurred, was not something that was really active in Irish political dialogue to a large extent. But it'll be interesting to see whether both nationalist and unionist parties start talking about this more. I think it's going to be a fascinating region in the near future for all of those reasons. And to be honest, but and one final comment I'll make, as I know we're fast running out of time, is that honestly, I'm not sure whether border poll will help calm tensions down, to be honest. Because we're seeing, remember, the SNP promised a referendum within a generation and six to seven years that we're, still, we're talking about the possibility of a second one. I think the margin is particularly close. That would certainly scare the bejesus out of the unionist side, to be honest, and how they react could be in a way that is detrimental to the peace process of Northern Ireland. But I think one comment overall is that Scotland was talking about the possibility of the second independence referendum. Northern Ireland, the prospect of border poll is not very far away. And in Wales, we're seeing Plaid Cymru come and we'll talk about this in a few podcasts as an alternative third party force. So the unionists have under a lot of strain at the moment in its various constitute parts. And the question of timing of referendums will become another political issue to deal with in all parts of the United Kingdom, isn't it? It will indeed. And one, I'm sure this won't be the last time we talk about. But for now, that is it for the latest episode of Ballots to Talk About. Do join us again next week when we will be previewing the local and mayoral elections across England and also the upcoming parliamentary by-election as well. And as always, we'll be bringing you up to date on the world of politics and elections around the globe. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at at ballot underscore talk. And please leave us a rating or review or tell your friends about us. My name is Sam and until next time, we'll speak to you soon.